Yeah, thank you for tuning in. It's more than a podcast. Inexhaustible episodes, God's vast. Glorify Him as we broadcast the Lord's grace and God's wrath. More serious than a bomb blast. Full disclosure inside the title. No surprises, simply put, guys with Bibles. Yeah. Just some regular reborn reformed cats If it's in the Bible then they're gonna speak on that Cause the scripture is the final word okay. Competing ideas quite absurd Of this you can be quite assured <laughs> yeah. We were lost in the darkness of night immersed in sin But then the, the light, light emerged. emerged It was the Son of God, divine Christ that shines light The word in Genesis that assigned life in hindsight And was revealed through the prophets and apostles We magnify and expound on the power of the gospel Yeah, yeah turning there, as some of us in the room may know, maybe perhaps more deeply than others, uh, in the Bible quizzing season that just ended, we were quizzing over the book of Mark, and it was really nice to spend some extra time in there uh, that I may not have spent otherwise. So we're looking at this passage today, partially because it, when we were quizzing over it, it really jumped out to me um, in a fresh way, and I wanted to maybe take this time to to share a little bit about it, for us to take a look at it together. So we're looking at Mark 9, verses 2 through 10. So we're looking at the transfiguration this morning. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain... He charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. We're going to start off with some contextual information here that we get in verse 2, where it says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John. What's the six days after what? What happened six days ago? For that, we're actually going to flip back just briefly. You may not even have to turn the page in your Bible, but I do. Uh, We're going to turn to uh, chapter 8, verse 27. Uh, Everybody's in Caesarea Philippi. And Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. So Jesus went on with the disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So we have this context here of Peter has confessed that Jesus is the Christ. After that, there's this lengthy section that we don't have to read this morning. But Jesus is going to be foretelling his death and his resurrection. And of course, the disciples don't get it. So they have now been baffled. Peter has given the good confession. The disciples are baffled about the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And now we get to this truly baffling scene here. So why Peter, James, and John is the next question. Well, as we know, we've seen them in other passages as sort of the inner circle within the inner circle of the Twelve. They actually have seen several other private ministry events that Jesus had had undertaken, uh, such as uh, the raising of Jairus' daughter is a good example. Uh, Another event that Jesus told uh, people not not to talk about, but of course they did. But I think part of the reason that all three of them are here is that we know from elsewhere in Scripture that any claim in a court of law or a charge against someone has to be brought on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And because this is such an extraordinary event, the transfiguration of Christ, I think the basis of two or three witnesses, eyewitnesses at the time, who would then write down what they had seen, uh, speaks to the... um, the, the surety of what occurred, that the fact that we can believe it because there were three eyewitnesses. Jesus fully knew the law, and so I think he brought those three 
trusted, most trusted disciples with him to deliver that credibility according to human knowledge. This is my opinion. You can take that as you will. Uh, so they have now gone, they're going up to a high mountain by themselves. So if you read some, especially some older commentaries, commentators have tried to say that this mountain is actually Mount Tabor, not that church over there, the actual mountain, <laughs> the actual mountain in Israel. Um, but that may not actually be the case. Actually, there's a good, uh, a good um, reason to consider Mount Hermon as this mountain. Why would that be? Well, if you, if you look at your map, Mount Hermon is actually very close to Caesarea Philippi, where Peter gave his confession. So it would make sense if they're going there, if they're going from that place up a high mountain, it might as well be a very close mountain. It also helps that Mount Hermon is also 9,000 feet above sea level. So I would call that a very high mountain, if it were up to me. Okay, so that's our place. Um, and regardless of whether it's Mount Hermon or Mount Tabor, according to Psalm 89.12, both Tabor and Hermon praise Yahweh's name. So um, it's not that huge of a deal. But I find that stuff very interesting. So in verse 2, then we get this very, I don't know, it seems very marked to me, and he was transfigured before them. If you, read, if you pay close attention to Mark, everything is immediately this happened, immediately this happened, immediately this happened. There is no lead up, there's no drama being built up, it's just event after event after event. And so he just puts it right out here, Jesus was transfigured before them. Um, now I'm no original languages expert in any way. So some supplementary material is always helpful. Uh, the Greek word here is metamorpho. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. But what is interesting is that word is the same word that is used of Christians and their sanctification elsewhere in the New Testament. So if you want to write these references down, you can. Romans 12, 2, and 2 Corinthians 3, 18, talking about being transformed, um, renewed. Uh, it's the same word. So Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. What a fascinating and frightening occurrence. Actually, as we see here, they were very frightened, uh, everybody who saw it. What is going on here with this radiance? In Scripture, radiance occurs when Yahweh comes close to his people, and his holiness shines out. So he can't do other than that. He's God. His radiance will shine, especially uh, when seen in, in, in earthly creatures, seen around earthly creatures. When he's in, when he's among his people, he will shine. He's holy. He's completely other. So Jesus here is kind of letting his divinity shine through in a visible way. Um, it's like the veil of the world is being peeled back and a little bit of the light in the throne room shines through. So this divine radiance actually reminds me of an Old Testament story. This is where we're going to put our our bulletin in Mark 9, we're going to turn to Exodus, Exodus 33. We're going to talk a little bit about Moses. I know he hasn't come on the scene yet, but there is so much Moses-like about this passage that um, we're going to spend some time in Exodus here and there this morning. Exodus 33, verses 18 through 23. Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live and the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So Moses is pleading with God. He's been up on the mountain. He's received the law. He's come down. There has, has been uh, terrible times in the camp with the golden calf. Moses has now gone back up uh, to meet with God on the mountain. No one can see Yahweh's face and live. 
this radiance would be too much, would be too much for a living person, a sinful man, to see God in the face and live. Um, So God in his mercy is making a way to grant Moses' request and he still be able to live and carry out the the calling that, that God has given him. So he's going to let him see his back as he passes by. Um, so we know that when we, have, when we encounter God, um, you come away changed. You're not the same. Um, I think we would, we would recall that in our moment of conversion when you understand what Christ has done for you, um, what he's called us to, who he is, his divinity, his humanity. Um, it changes you, and you repent and you believe. Um, I think we have a very similar thing here, obviously, but in the Old Testament. And we're actually going to, let's look at the change that it makes in Moses. We're going to go to, just flip briefly to chapter 34. Not that far away. You may not even have to turn the page. Uh, Verses 29 through 35. So Exodus 34, 29 through 35. This is, this is really fun, and um, I know we're, we're aware of what happens here. There is a, uh, there's a funny story of a mistranslated version of this passage where translators didn't understand the word shining in Hebrew. They got it mixed up with the word for horned. So if you, you look at some old, uh, people have made old sculptures or depictions of Moses that actually have horns on his head, so he, he kind of looks a little devilish. Uh, that really entertains me. Um, Moses didn't grow horns. <laughs> we'll just make that abundantly clear. Uh, Exodus 34, starting in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. So even looking at the back of God uh, led to a sort of reflected radiance in Moses' own face. And I think that is, um, that's a very arresting image to me. I think there's an interesting comparison uh, with our main passage today. Um, but we have to remember that Moses, who beheld part of this glory of Yahweh, even from the back, not the face, um, that radiance is a reflected radiance. So Moses was reflecting this radiance that he had beheld uh, in the rock with God, and he had to put a veil over his face so he wouldn't scare the entire community. But we have to remember that, that that radiance faded over time. He didn't have to wear the veil forever. So the radiance did go away. Um, here, if we flip back to Mark 9 now, the eternal Son of the Father is not reflecting radiance. His clothes became radiant. The radiance that comes out from Christ in the transfiguration comes from him, comes from out of him, not taking radiance that he's witnessing from the Father and reflecting it back at the disciples. This is radiance from Christ. He is divine. He is God, very God of very God. Um, The radiance is sourced in him, and his clothes reflect it um, in, in that they picture it. The clothes become radiant. It's his glory. He's the eternal son of the Father. It's his glory to show or not to show. And uh, by his grace, he showed it here. Um, There's an interesting detail when we talk about the radiance. Uh, Mark says that it's intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, this bleaching detail is is Mark's detail only. That's That's not given in any of the other gospel accounts. Uh, and like I said before, Mark is usually one that kind of smashes details down. He takes things and just says immediately, this thing happened, this next thing happened, and this next thing happened. <clears throat> but he makes this extra detail here about the bleach. The kind of white that no launderer could ever bleach clothing. 
Uh, I have to think that he was incredibly taken with this display of divine glory. I don't know, that maybe he was struggling for some other way to say it, and this was the best he could do. Permit me a moment, uh, a brief illustration. <laughs> I'm a fan uh, of Bob Ross, as you might be able to tell from everything about me. Uh, <laughs> and I've watched quite a few episodes of Bob Ross's Joy of Painting television show. And on occasion, uh, Bob Ross will begin with a very dark canvas, uh, a dark blue, maybe even black, with a little bit of color mixed in. He's painting a, a nighttime scene or a stormy scene or something not bright and beautiful like we assume a Bob Ross painting would be. And so he'll, t he'll explain his colors, how he mixed them, what he's doing, all these kinds of things, and then he'll announce in that beautiful, deep, quiet, relaxing voice that he has, that he's going to be dipping into the titanium white. And you look at that, you look at it on the palette, and that little brush goes in there, then he takes it and he, he draws a moon in place, I don't know, a moon or some lightning or something, and in my little mind, I think, man, I don't know that I've ever seen anything that white before as that titanium white on Bob Ross's canvas. Well, let's take that and, and multiply it by a thousand, by a million. And against the backdrop of our horrible, dark, twisted world, this amazing brightness of Christ shines out into it. We have really no way good to describe it. There are no whites on earth that could be as white as the holiness and glory of God. Not even Bob Ross's titanium white. So I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So I have to imagine that Peter, James, and John were just baffled. Um, their minds just cranked up uh, beyond anything they have ever seen before. The, this ultimate holiness, the otherness of Yahweh, holy in a, in a category of his own, is standing before them at that moment. And not only that, uh, there are visitors as well. If we look in verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So I want to I ask, why Moses and Elijah? Why, why, were they ones that, why were they the ones that were there? So why wasn't maybe Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or um, David and Solomon? Um, does anybody have any idea why Moses and Elijah get the uh, pleasure of joining Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration? Any wild theories? Well, I have a wild theory, and uh, it's because... Moses and Elijah stand in for the entirety of the written word at the time. Moses, as we know, represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. And actually, other, elsewhere in uh, the Gospels, Jesus will mention Scripture, the, what we would call the Jewish Tanakh, um, as the, the Old Testament, okay, as the law and the prophets. So we have kind of the the figureheads of those two types within the Old Testament here conferring with, with Jesus. So um, maybe we'll do a little bit of uh, um, uh, association here. Uh, so when we talk about Moses, what do you think of? What are some of the big, po big, big poster events in Moses' life that say, oh, this is, this is quintessential Moses? What are some of those big events from Scripture? The Exodus, the Exodus yep. Yep, freedom from uh, slavery in Israel for, uh, or <laughs> freedom in Egypt for Israel. Yep, yep. Uh, what else? What else? Parting the Red Sea. Yep. The plagues, all that leading up to it. Um, all the signs and wonders that were done, you know, staves turned into snakes, turned back into staves. Uh, and the Passover as well. Um, these were all events that. Um, that, that make Moses a type of Christ, um, somebody who foreshadows the work that Jesus would do, um, leading his people out of slavery. Moses led them out of Egypt. Christ leads his people out of sin, the ultimate bondage, the ultimate slavery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, 
He's, he's, no, uh, he's no superhero. <laughs> he smacks the rock twice. He receives uh, some rebuke for that from God. He also smashed the, the first edition of the Ten Commandments, too, when he comes down the mountain. And actually, when we read about his, his face changing, he was getting vol- uh, edition, the second edition of the Ten Commandments. So by, by far, a very, very human human, very, very flawed, um, which is really incredible you know, that we have the benefit in Scripture of seeing examples of very flawed people being used mightily by God. Makes us feel a little bit better about our own plight sometimes, or maybe that's just me. Um, the Jews today still refer to Moses as Moses the teacher. Moshe Robenu is how they refer to him as kind of the teacher of teachers, the greatest of all time. But obviously they, uh, they do not recognize Christ as the, uh, the teacher, the divine teacher. Uh, how about Elijah? What are some events from the life and ministry of Elijah that may pop out in your mind if you think about him? Okay, yep. Uh, yes, solving hunger with endless oil. Yep, that's a good one. That's a very good one. Uh, how about the destruction of Baal's prophets on the mountain, um, where they are trying for hours upon hours uh, to call Baal to light their, uh, their sacrifice, and he obviously he doesn't. He doesn't exist. So they could have done that as long as they wanted to, and nothing would have happened. And Elijah calls on God to light his sacrifice and uh, a very wetted down sacrifice even. And it's completely destroyed by fire from God. Uh, Elijah also raised a widow's son as well. And I think that's an important story in remembering that Elijah as well is a type of Christ. Um, that he was foreshadowing the raising of many people from the dead, from spiritual death. And also the fact that the dead do rise from the dead um, and live again as Christ would do himself, even though obviously the disciples didn't understand that at the time. Um, One more thing about Elijah, he actually had a particular meaning aside from the actual events in his life that the prophet Malachi gives him. Um, I'm going to turn to it, but you don't don't have to. Um, Malachi 4, 4 and 5. Uh, this, is, this is partially referred to elsewhere in the New Testament. It's going to sound familiar if you haven't read Malachi in a while, which I hadn't, so a little confession time there for you. Malachi 4, 4 and 5. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will return the hearts of the Father <clears throat> to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So these, these are the last prophetic words that are given before the great time of silence, uh, before um, Jesus' birth was announced. So the very last two people that are mentioned in the voice of a prophet are Moses and Elijah, and that there was a promise that uh, someone would come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. This is exactly what's quoted in Zechariah's prayer, um, his dedication of John the Baptist. So when Jesus says elsewhere that um, we know that John the Baptist has come, or we know that Elijah has come, we're talking about John the Baptist. Um, So there's sort of an eschatological aspect to Elijah here because we're looking for a time to come when Elijah will return. There will be someone that comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. So you need to watch and make sure and and find when that man comes about and listen to him. Uh, One more interesting uh, detail before we uh, move to the next verse. Um, This is the first time that Moses has set foot in the promised land. Uh, Moses died before he got to enter. He was not allowed to enter. God would not allow him uh, to come to the promised land. So he actually, got, he actually got to see Yahweh face-to-face before he actually got to set foot in the promised land. So it probably was a little bit anticlimactic for him, but I, I consider that a huge milestone, and I was happy for him. So our guests are here. They've arrived. Now we look in uh, 
um, as we continue in verse 5, or I'm sorry, verse 4. They were talking with Jesus. Talking. They were talking with Jesus. This is no idle chit-chat. The Greek word here, again, I had to look this up. I'm very glad for (laughs) supplementary resources. Um, The Greek word that's used here, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, is also used in Luke 22.4, if you want to write that down, and Acts 25.12. Well, that's lovely. What does that mean? (laughs) I'll tell you. In, in Luke 22.4, that is where the chief priests and the officers confer. And in Acts 25.12, that's where Festus also confers with his council. So this is not just conversation that's going on. This is, a, this is um, discussion. This is purposeful. The, uh, there's a level of authority here that uh, is different than if when we begin to chit-chat before worship (laughs) begins this morning. Uh, They are talking. They are talking about something very specific. And they're talking about something that Mark doesn't give us here, but we actually do uh, hear the topic of what they're discussing in Luke's account. Uh, Luke says that in uh, Luke 9.31, that they spoke of his departure, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. I think this is, this is amazing, actually, because the ministries of Moses and Elijah pointed to Christ. They, they had, were always pointing to Christ, even when people didn't understand what the Messiah, who the Messiah was going to be, what he was going to do. Um, and, but now, Moses and Elijah have had the benefit of being in glory with God, speaking, learning, talking, and now they've come, and they know exactly what Jesus is about to do. They, they know it completely, and they're talking with him in real time of stuff that they know has happened or will happen. Uh, they've seen it occur, um, and, and also it's a guarantee uh, because this, this is a part of the covenant of redemption. Uh, Jesus' work uh, to save his people, to die, to rise, and, uh, and to ascend to the right hand of the Father is guaranteed by the covenant of redemption in eternity past, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit covenanted together to save a people, and that they would save a people through the blood of a perfect sacrifice, through Jesus. So Moses and Elijah aren't surprised. They aren't terrified, because they they have seen and they know uh, what is actually going to happen here. Okay, verses, uh, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6 together. Where Peter steps in it, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. In true Peter fashion, he opens his mouth and inserts his foot. We all know that he had no right to schedule a conference on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, It's a, and obviously he was terrified. It says that in verse six. So he's just going. He just knows something has to be said. This is too amazing to just let it go by, to not acknowledge it, to not say something. And you can always, in the pages of scripture, you can always trust Peter to say something. Um, But I don't know that he's, I don't think that he's uh, got a bad motivation for this. Uh, It's easy to sympathize with him because I think if we were having an amazing experience like this, seeing something like this, I'm not sure we'd want it to end either. And if you've got Moses and Elijah, two very powerful uh, voices from the Old Testament, along with Jesus, who Peter has already confessed is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, I think you're going to want to sit there and learn a little while and hold things up. But remember that um, not that far away from here, Jesus has already said to Peter, uh, depart from me, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So I think in his attempt to hold up this experience, to, to camp out, as it were, to set up tents, uh, he's kind of falling back into that same mindset again. Jesus has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He has work to do there that the disciples don't understand. So this was not the right call for him to make. Um, but I, for me, I can't separate the word tents from the word tabernacles. Um, that was probably what was intended here. That's usually what 
a tent was called, especially in a Jewish context. And tabernacles are associated with worship. You know, before there was a temple in Jerusalem, there was a traveling tabernacle where the presence of God uh, went, where, where it stayed, where people would come to worship. So I think, I think Peter has his mind set on worship here, um, just maybe not in the, in the proper way. <laughs> okay, so verse 7, uh, given the, the confusion of Peter, uh, the terror that's being experienced, um, God does a very gracious and also terrifying thing. Uh, he sends a cloud, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. Now, this wouldn't be the first time that God has spoken from or appeared in a cloud. Um, as I promised, we're going back to Exodus again. Um, so you can put your bulletin in Mark 9 there. We're going to turn to Exodus 24, verses 15 and 16. And we're going to flip around in Exodus a little bit for the next few minutes. Exodus 24, 15 and 16. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. Then on the seventh day, he called out to Moses. He called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So we see very plainly the presence of God coming visibly in a cloud. Um, let's go back a little earlier to... Uh, chapter 13, Exodus 13, 21 and 22. And this will be familiar as well. We're talking about the pillar of cloud. Uh, so after the Exodus uh, in the journey um, out from slavery, there, were, there was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Exodus 13, 21 and 22. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud <clears throat> to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of, flower, uh, pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And then one more, we're going to go to Exodus 16, 10. Now we're talking about the uh, um, we're talking about worship here. Uh, Exodus sixteen ten. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Okay, so we we have these examples just to try to paint the picture that almost every time you see a cloud, you can associate it with the presence of God, especially in an Old Testament context. That, that is so common, especially through Exodus alone, um, that uh, it, it almost seems to be the, the signature mark of, of when God appears. Um, elsewhere, uh, the cloud fills the Holy of Holies um, in 1 Kings at the dedication of the temple. <clears throat> so the same cloud that, that the people of Israel followed out of Egypt um, to signify the presence of God then goes and dwells in the Holy of Holies in the temple. All right, another, another Exodus passage. We're going to go to Exodus 40. Exodus 40. The very last verses of the book of Exodus. Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they would not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys." In the transfiguration here, we, we have finally the cloud hovering over the true and final tabernacle, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> in fact, we even read in John 1 that, he, that Christ tabernacled with us. 
so we kind of see the fulfillment of this dwelling of the tabernacle here in Christ. I think that's a really amazing and important detail. Um, and this also has to do with the, the points of their sojourning out of slavery. And even though there is no physical tabernacle, there is going to be sojourning after this. There, there definitely will be, uh, but it will be in the direction of Jerusalem, to, the, to Calvary, to the grave, and then to the right hand of the Father. Um, and then the church will spread to all corners of the earth. Um, so the sojourning <clears throat> is not quite over, but we're not walking towards salvation. We're walking in salvation. All right, back to Mark again. Uh, by the way, this, uh, this Sunday school will also count as a, uh, as a navigator course as well. So you're, <laughs> you're all going to be navigators after this. <laughs> okay, so uh, the cloud overshadowed them. That's also a really important word. I mean, all, all these words are important, but overshadowed, that word puts me in mind of two very specific passages, and I think they're both quite relevant to what we're talking about here. Um, the first takes us all the way to the beginning of all creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit was hovering over, or overshadowing, the face of the waters, and then God said, let there be light. Um, obviously, we're getting some light in this passage as well, so um, there will be light. We are seeing the light of Christ literally in this passage. Uh, and then, of course, the other time we think about the word overshadowed is in the annunciation of Christ's birth. Um, that the promise that the Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary uh, so that the baby to be born will be called the Son of God. So all that same power, the creative power from Genesis 1 to the indwelling presence of God in the womb of Mary, all of that same presence, Yahweh's power is involved here in this appearance on the mountain, not only in Christ's transfiguration, of course, but <clears throat> even in this cloud that appears. Um, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, actually that same power accompanies our reading of this text as well, even this morning. Um, we can turn to Second Peter just briefly. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19. So, okay, so this is a, a letter by one of the eyewitnesses of the glory uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter himself. <clears throat> 2 Peter 1, 16 through 19. Peter's going to make implicit reference to the Transfiguration right here. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp <clears throat> shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Actually, I'm going to go through 20 and 21 because why not? Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, <clears throat> but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter's you know, recalling the transfiguration here, we've seen it. We heard the voice that was born uh, by the majestic glory. They heard the words, this is my beloved son. And yet we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which <clears throat> you will do well to pay attention. So his words, Peter's own words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are the full confirmation of this event. Uh, the same power that accompanied the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain all, of, all that that means, we experience that same power when we read the text, when we believe, when we read in faith, and when we, when we pray. Um, that same power <clears throat> comes to us. I think that's why Scripture is such a, uh, a remarkable treasure to have. So let's see what the words uh, are from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Yahweh is restating what was already announced at Jesus' baptism. 
that the Father is well pleased with him as he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. <clears throat> and he's well pleased with him now as he heads with a face like flint toward Jerusalem, toward the cross and toward burial and toward resurrection. But the, cloud, the voice from the cloud doesn't stop there. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. You know, listen to him. Listen to him. Uh, this is another echo of Moses as well. Uh, you don't have to turn here, but I'm going to read to you Deuteronomy 18.15. It's really hard to escape Moses in this passage. Um, Deuteronomy 18.15. <clears throat> the Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So the people were well accustomed to listening to Moses, you know. Moshe Rabbeinu, the teacher of teachers, the greatest of all teachers. And Moses himself says, there's going to be one like, God will raise up one like me from among the brothers. Listen to him. And this is the time um, the voice of God from the cloud says, and I think fulfills that very scripture, listen to him, the one with the clothes that are whiter than any person could bleach them. So just as they were to listen to Moses before, we're to listen to Christ now, the one who radiates the glory that Moses briefly radiated in his own face uh, and had to be veiled, listen to that one, the one who has the glory of God, not the one who simply reflected the glory of God in his face for a little while uh, to try to bring those two things together. The everlasting God has approved of all of Jesus' teaching, so we do well to listen to Jesus and to him alone. That's why we put no one above Christ. So we have many teachers, we have <clears throat> elders, we have so many respected people in the church that we love and care about. But we do wrong if we were to put anybody above Christ, if we were to listen to any man above Christ. We, we listen to Christ in the word, and we listen to teachers who faithfully <clears throat> proclaim the truth of the gospel and preach the word soundly. To listen to Christ is to believe in Christ and in his sovereignty and his authority to command us, to instruct us, um, to encourage us, and in his, uh, in his intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. <clears throat> We're to be doers of the word, not hearers only. So we believe sola scriptura and tota scriptura. Um, all, all of scriptures God breathed, as we know, and it's useful for teaching and correction, rebuke and training all these things. Uh, interesting to note on this, uh, Matthew includes an encouragement from Christ himself in Matthew 17, 6. After the disciples hear the voice and they hear the instruction to listen to Christ, <clears throat> Jesus tells them, rise and have no fear. I think that's very important. Um, we should fear God as in to love and to seek to obey the Holy One, but we should not cower in fear despite this awesome glory that we're noticing in this passage. So then our friends disappear, and they no longer saw anyone, according to verse 8, but Jesus only. So when the dust settles on this amazing event that happens, there is only Jesus that is left. Moses and Elijah, they've gone back. Their time in this, in this little story is done. Only Jesus remains. Uh, we may refer to that as uh, perhaps solus Christus, if we were talking about the five solas. Christ alone. Moshe Rabbeinu is no longer here. Elijah the Tishbite, the eschatological prophet, is no longer here. <clears throat> because Christ ushers in his kingdom and puts the old forms to nothing in his life, death, and resurrection. Then in verse 9, uh, he tells them to tell no one. And so why would, uh, why would Jesus tell them? They've seen this amazing thing. <clears throat> why wouldn't you go around town and, and ask everybody or tell everybody about this amazing thing that happened? Why would Jesus tell them that? I would say because Jesus is intending to keep the main thing the main thing. This is an important story, but this is a story that would have, people would have taken and overshadowed the real work of Christ his death, his burial, and his resurrection. People were already looking for the wrong kind of Messiah before. This story, without the context, without the knowledge of what Christ was going to do in Jerusalem, 
would, would distort the story. The story would not come out correctly. <clears throat> so we have to understand the, the power and importance behind Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and session at the right hand. We have to look to the cross. And verse 10 says they did obey, but they still didn't understand. And that's fine. They didn't have to understand. They were set to be eyewitnesses of the glory. They would see Jesus on the cross when the time came. They would see him buried, and then they would see him in his resurrected body and watch him as he ascended into heaven. Now, those of us, we haven't, we haven't seen that with our own eyes. You know, as John says in 1 John, there's all these things that we have seen, that we've touched. We've done all these things. We have the, the sensory information but we don't have the benefit of that, or do we? Uh, we? Instead, we have the word more fully confirmed in the pages of Scripture. We have all of that testimony, all of that credible testimony inspired by the Holy Spirit in the pages of Scripture. And so we do well when we study, when we read in faith, uh, when we remember all of these stories of Christ, all of his teachings, and then all of the, all of the material of, of Scripture, the, the Old Testament information that provides the backdrop onto which Jesus is painted uh, in the words of Scripture. We need all of that, and it's all a treasure, and it's all beneficial. So, in our last few minutes, uh, just some considerations. <clears throat> First, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord, and because he's Lord, he is other than us. He's holy, and he's transcendent. He took on flesh, though, and lived a human life for us. He's a profound mystery in that way, that the Father delights in, and he blesses his teachings, and he works, he does work for us. He intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father, and that work is applied to us by the, by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is God incarnate, and we would do well to retain our reverence of him and not get lax. He is glorious, and we need to remember that. Uh, the second, we should look to Christ alone. All of Scripture points to Christ. And we should put no other person, <clears throat> even our favorite giants of the faith, above him in our estimation. Um, he is Christ. So in all of our study, all of our devotions, uh, all of our worship, uh, when we come to corporate worship, uh, when we read and study and pray privately, or we, uh, or we worship with our families, we have to look to Christ. Christ is supreme. Um, he's the only one standing at the top of the mountain. And then the third consideration, we should listen to Christ in faith and obedience in that order. We can't obey without putting our faith in Christ. And if we're putting our faith in Christ, if we believe, let's say we believe in a Christ that has no commandments to obey, then we believe in a false Christ. We have a life of obedience to live. So we have to see Jesus. We have to behold his glory in our hearts as he was on the mountain. We have to see him and savor him, to quote John Piper. We have to see Christ and savor him and then obey him. We have to do that in that order. Otherwise, the truth is not in us. All right, any, any big questions? Any questions about the passage or all the myriad places of the Old Testament we journeyed to today? <laughs> They wouldn't have seen their faces, right? Yeah, they, they wouldn't have known. I have to think that, that um, in their spirit they had to have known. Um, because Peter, Peter names them. He says, one, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. <clears throat> I would think it would just have to be the, the redeemed spirit saying, oh my goodness, there's Moses. Perhaps maybe the way that we would be in, in glory. Um, we'll see Paul, never seen his face, but we'll know that it's him. We'll know, it, we'll know who Christ is, you know. We haven't seen his face either. It is amazing to think about, though. Right. Right. They have to preach the word, right? Yeah. We're not preaching visions. You know, the, the, the prophets were not very cool about preaching visions, um, and, the, and the apostles aren't either. You know, we preach the word. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. See what you heard, not what you saw. 
Anybody else? All right. Well, to, to sum up, we should call on Christ. <clears throat> we should behold his glory. To paraphrase Hebrews 1, uh, he is the heir of all things through whom the world was created. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And he upholds your own soul by the word of his power, by the blood of his cross, by the supremacy of his resurrection, and his glorious session at the right hand of the Father as your advocate. So run to him, delight in him, revel in his glory, and listen to him. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the treasure of the scripture. Um, thank you for uh, this time uh, that we can gather and read and meditate over it together. I pray that um, as we considered this text today, <clears throat> I pray that we did see Christ only, that we didn't see um, anyone else, any other thoughts or ideas or concepts other than Christ is Lord, Yahweh is our God, that you are great, and you are holy, and you are transcendent, and you're gracious to us, um, quick to compassion for your children, and slow to anger. So we thank you for all of these great attributes, for your holiness, and for your thoughts toward us. <clears throat> so I pray that now as we, uh, as we go to our time of corporate worship, as you've called us to do, that you would bless us this Lord's Day and give us rest, uh, remind us continually of who you are, and I pray that we, uh, as we were to uh, approach your table <clears throat> later in the service, that, uh, that we would talk of your death, your life, death, and resurrection, Christ, and the glory of the resurrection uh, each day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, and I pray that uh, you will restore our hearts today. It's in Jesus' name we pray.